Today's episode of Found Down is brought to you by Unwound Retreats. Unwound Retreats offers fun events and travel experiences for nurses locally and internationally. Founded by me, Nicole Johnson, ICU nurse and host of the Found Down podcast, I provide opportunities for nurses to practice self-care, learn, and travel together. These last two years have been brutal in healthcare, and why not give yourself the gift to unwind, learn, and grow? Previous guests have loved the experiences, especially because you can just show up and know that everything will be taken care of. Unwound Retreats is offering exciting and luxurious retreats in Morocco and Mexico. Go over to unwoundretreats.com and sign up to get on the email list so you can find out more. Welcome to the Found Down Podcast. This is a podcast of untold nursing stories that are sometimes hilarious, dark, insane, and anything in between. As a warning, this show is rated E and is mature in content. It often deals with the reality of life and death and how we as nurses intersect with that on a regular basis. If we laugh, it's not out of disrespect. We love what we do and have every intention of continuing to do so. With that, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Found Down Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Johnson, and today I'm so excited. I have one of my old colleagues on the show, Jerry, is it Ludke? Ludke. Ah, Jerry, Jerry Ludke on the show. He's a respiratory, retired respiratory therapist with almost 50 years of experience. We're going to talk about how Jerry was the first licensed respiratory therapist in Washington State. We're going to chat about the relationships between nurses and respiratory therapists. We love, nurses love respiratory therapists. Just, you know, that's just, that's a true story. And then we're going to chat maybe about some patient stories, um, because often those respiratory therapists are so involved in the patient care for day to day, especially in the ICU. So, Enough about that right now. Jerry, how are you? I'm well, thank you. You had you made the very lucky decision to retire before the pandemic hit. Well, it was I hadn't I didn't know the pandemic was coming, but uh retirement and and our our goals were lots of travel, but that's been uh abbreviated a bit by the travel restrictions, so so you had planned to retire in, did you retire end of 2019? I retired in 2019, actually in the middle of 2019. And then, uh, but I wanted to come back to work in 2020 kind of per diem. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that I would have 50 years of work in respiratory. But that I haven't is come incredible. back yet. Yeah, maybe when... Do you think you will, or is that just well, that ship has sailed? My license is active until 2021, the end of 2021. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess we will see. I mean, I personally would love to see you around, but uh, a lot's changed. <laughs> <laughs> well, they say old people should stay away from COVID, so. Yeah. Yes. I, it is weird to think of you as old, though. But I suppose if you have 50 years of experience, probably are. No, I don't know. I don't want to say that you're old. But um, so life is good. It's very good. Uh, we did get some traveling in, went to Norway and, and uh, Costa Rica uh, and the Cayman Islands before uh, COVID. And actually took a cruise up the Amazon uh, <gasps> right as the pandemic was starting. So uh, that was a little, maybe a little dicey being on a cruise and uh, flying and things right at the, as the pandemic got started, that was back in January. So. Oh yeah. 
Well, luckily, gosh, that was lucky. Whew. So I want to know, so there was one time at work where I was talking to you and you told me that you were the, you had license number one as a respiratory therapist <laughs> that, and that just floored me. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and your sort of sure. career as a respiratory therapist? Yeah. Back in, uh, in the mid eighties, uh, nationally respiratory therapists were not a licensed group. We were, there was educational programs, uh, two year and four year programs around the country, but there were no standards for working in a state. So someone could come in and, and misrepresent themselves as a respiratory therapist in Washington state and go to work and oh. doing critical care, even if they didn't know what they were doing and uh, make mistakes. And, and at times they were fired, but they could go down the street and get another job. So as a state organization, we decided to pursue licensure for respiratory care. And I volunteered to head up that effort. And uh, over a three year period of time, I lobbied it through Olympia finally got it passed and uh, it was time to write the rules. And, and I really didn't care for that aspect of, of the process. So I exited from the rule drafting process. And then as they were issuing our licenses, uh, the committee asked the state if they would give me the license number one based on all of my efforts. And uh, they said that they never started with one. They started with 101, and you know they they did uh, uh, ask them a couple more times, and and they said, yeah, we can make an exception. So my license number is zero 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 one. I love that. So I I tell people that it was they, I was assigned that number based on skills and abilities, but not many people believe that. So. But that was true, though, right? Because you were did all the groundbreaking work to right. get it together. I, I helped draft the law, and then I lobbied it through. And it's fun to go through the, the process of the rules committee and the healthcare committee and ways and means. And you know, just just like you learned in school, it was you know you you testify before the uh, the groups and and state your case and. It's really interesting to think about, uh, you know, I mean, there are, there are some laymen that listen to this show, um, but that, you know, respiratory therapists are, are so critical in the management of the ventilator. Um, and, you know, and our patients who are on a ventilator oftentimes are very sick. Um, and like, I mean, I'm sure a lot has changed from now and back then, but like, if you didn't know what you were doing, you could you could kill somebody. Yeah, there were actually people that were being harmed by people that didn't know what they were doing. So that was kind of impetus for pursuing the licensure. That is amazing. We, I, you're a legend. We, we worked with you for, <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, I knew you were uh, an amazing therapist, but I didn't know about the actual impact you had on your profession. It was, it was interesting when I first uh, they assigned me that number. It was, I, I thought that's kind of hokey, but over time it, uh, it, it was fun to have and, and just kind of a, something to talk about periodically. So mm -hmm. quick, 
question. This may not be a quick question, but what is the most surprising thing if you look back, when you think back on like the evolution of maybe ventilator management and like respiratory care over since you started? Like what's something that you, um, I don't know, like that has been exciting or surprising with the evolution of your field? Well, a lot of things have changed. And, and when I started, ventilators were relatively new. Uh, PEEP was a new concept. And mm. not all ventilators had PEEP devices. And mm. we used, uh, at, at, I started out working at Harborview, and we used pressure ventilators, and, and which at times were very inadequate for ventilating patients. And, and it's kind of like, and the old pressure ventilators were like, uh, putting somebody on pressure support, and it was uh, limited. So if you rolled a patient around, their tidal volume would change dramatically. And so all the therapists had a little rights respirometer in our pocket, and we'd walk from bed to bed to bed and, and measuring tidal volumes and minute ventilation. And, and so the monitoring was much more intense than it is now. The, the ventilators we have now are almost on autopilot. You yeah, know, you set them and and you check on them periodically to make sure they're functioning properly and see if there's been any changes. But mm. uh, it took a lot more uh, attention in the beginning. It's almost like I what I imagine the nurses who had to calculate their drip rates by right, you know, and that now that's we don't do that anymore. Right, um, but that yeah, I remember watching the nurses with their watch and. Watching the drips and count, you know, it's just, it's, uh, yeah. Let's talk about the relationships between nurses and respiratory therapists. I'm like, you guys are the cheese to our macaroni. Like we, we have, um, such an amazing, you know, especially in critical care, we, you know, well, well, actually, let me just go back. When I first started in critical care, my preceptor would say, your respiratory therapist is your best friend. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. Your, yeah. Yeah. Respiratory was actually born out of the nursing profession. And uh, back and in Washington State, it was actually it started at the University of Washington. And uh, Dr. Fred Cheney was an anesthesiologist. And he recruited a, a couple of nurses, uh, Fran uh, Hopperstad and Ellen Nelson, both RNs, and they started the respiratory department at the U. And then they started a, uh, a training program for respiratory therapists, and actually we were called inhalation therapists at the U, and it was an in-hospital training program. And uh, they taught them about anatomy and physiology, and, the, and they didn't have to be an RN to get into the program. So they started recruiting people that had an interest in healthcare, maybe more of a mechanical focus. And mm. so they started the training program, ran it for several years, and then transferred it, uh, the, the training program to an associate degree program out at Highline Community College. And then eventually, Fran Hopperstead went over and started an RT program at Children's, and Ellen Nelson uh, ran the RT program at the U. And then following that, she became an educator down at Highline. Hmm. So it really, our roots are, are, are from nursing. 
That's why we love you so much. <laughs> I'll just speak to what happens at the bedside. Um, now it just, it, I feel like, you know, oftentimes you all are, you're there in the middle of codes with us. Obviously you're managing the ventilator. Um, and, uh, and your understanding of the ventilator is it's obvious it's your, it's what you do. So it's more advanced than, um, the bedside nurse. So we really depend and rely on our, our RTs and, uh, we just work so closely, so closely with you guys. Um, shout out to Claudio, who <laughs> who listens to this podcast. Um, but we really couldn't do our jobs without excellent, uh, amazing respiratory. You know, the way therapists. I look at it is is uh, I'm I belong to a respiratory department, but I really my team is actually the nurse, and because I'm out on the floor, I'm in the unit with my nurse colleagues, and and you know, I have my assigned patients. So I see you guys all the time and I might see my fellow respiratory therapists when I go back and, and report out at the end of the shift. And so I see nursing a lot more than I see other RTs. So it's oh, part that's of that true. atmosphere. Yes. I, I was just wondering, this is a little bit of a off sidetrack, but are you, do you miss work at all right now? Absolutely. You know, I would, I would, even with COVID, I would come back in a heartbeat if my wife would let me. Mm. It's just too risky, though. It is, although you know, it, uh, it's always the the person that you don't know that has COVID and you don't prepare for that that you get it from. So, it, that's true. You know, having lots of PPE and and being prepared and and alert and and oriented, you know, then I think it's. Uh, you're probably relatively safe, but you know, it's, it's kind of funny being retired and, and, you know, my, my days are different. I, I don't have a set schedule and, and that caused me a little bit of stress because I, I had a schedule my whole life. So uh, I've had, <laughs> yeah, what a big change. So at work right now, everybody is, you know, we're in a mask 12 out 12 of the 12 and a half hours that we're there. Um, and we were wearing eye protection like all the time. So we don't really see our faces anymore. Um, it's just our eyes, you know, it's just, a it's a bit of a change for sure. But we're, we're, we obviously are taking the precautions very seriously. So everyone's in really appropriate PPE. And then, you know, we are really safe when we're going into our COVID positive rooms. And so we've, we've adapted still, there's some underlying, level of fear and anxiety there. But, um, most, for the most part we are, you know, we're doing a good job of, of adhering to infection prevention. I think what I would miss most is, is the little potlucks that we always had in the, in the break room. So, you know, I don't know if, if, uh, that's still off limits and, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, we have, um, we've had a couple of, little events, but like, we're not encouraging folks to share food. So, um, but yeah, it's a different, different world. We would take you back in a heartbeat too. (laughs) (laughs) Have a super competent, um, funny and fun RT running around is always, always great. So RTs work so closely with our patients who struggle to get off a ventilator and we call this ventilator vent weaning or, you know, um, 
sometimes people are on ventilators for a day. Some people are on them for a week. But then sometimes we have folks that literally aren't on the ventilator and in the ICU for months. Can you talk about the relationship that you have with those patients um, or reflect on that sort of experience? Yeah, you know, it. Uh, I think uh, in the beginning in my career, I was more focused on on short term, I was a trauma junkie at Harborview and, and really enjoyed that. And then as I, I think I matured, uh, I realized that anybody can put somebody on a ventilator, but sometimes the, the challenge is getting them off the ventilator. So late in my career, I, I guess I set a challenge for myself to, to try and wean the patients that everybody else had given up on. And uh, they didn't want the long-term patient because it was frustrating and, and it, we weren't having success. And, and so I really uh, learned to enjoy the challenge of getting somebody off a ventilator that was stuck and developing a relationship with the patient and getting them to trust me. And, and it was, you know, part coach, part cheerleader, part therapist and, and being there for them and, and working them like you would train an athlete. And, and if you're weaning somebody and they're stuck, if rather than trying to do it all at once, if you take it in small chunks, if I decide to, to wean for two hours today and three hours tomorrow and four hours the next day, it's like training an athlete. You build them up and, and you don't want to exhaust them, but you want to work them harder than they did before and stretch them each day. And I really enjoyed that challenge. And, and some of my, my best memories of, are of patients that, you know, I did work with and I did get them off over, over time. And, and, you know, I became friends with their, their families and, and, uh, you know, it was, it was very rewarding. Sometimes it didn't work out. Sometimes you couldn't get them off and, and that was just the way it is. But, I, I really did enjoy the challenge of that. I think about, you know, these patients and, and obviously, I mean, it is incredibly scary and anxiety provoking to feel like you can't breathe. Um, and I think about like those patients that are on the ventilator, but we like, we know that they can do more than they think they can. And, and you sometimes you like switch them to the. We we sometimes like sneak you know put them on pressure supporter, um, or or adjust their settings and they end up doing a lot more than they think they that they think they can. Did you do any any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, occasionally, but uh, I didn't want to do it very much because you don't want to destroy that that trust that you yes. built up, and and so. Uh, if I might tell them that I was I was going to do that in advance the day before and just say, look, I'm going to start your wean. You may not know when I do it. And so I would start it off at a point which was very close to what their their normal settings were. And then uh, every 10 or 15 minutes, turn it down just a little bit so that they eased into it. So it's not a surprise. But if you have if you're being supported on a ventilator and it's doing all of the work and you switch it all at once into, okay, now I have to do all of the work, you know, they notice that and, and they can feel it. And, and 
if they're anxious at all, that that uh, can cause them more stress, which increases their, their O2 consumption. And the next thing you know, you're, you've got a quick fail. But, yeah. And, and also, you know, we don't, we're, you and I right now, we're not breathing through a straw. You know, we're not, the way that we, the mechanics of the actual breathing on a ventilator is very different from what it normally feels like. Is that, is that right? That's true. You know, and, and but the long-term patients are, have, are typically have a tracheostomy tube. So that oh, is not true. nearly as difficult to breathe through as uh, an endotracheal tube because what's okay. uh, a Pacelli's uh, gas law and, and the, uh, resistance through a tube, the longer it is, the narrower it is, the harder it is to breathe. And, and, but you put a trach tube in and they're only, you know, like six or seven centimeters long. And so there's not a lot of resistance there, but with that, there's also patients that have a trach also lose that mechanical advantage of, of having resistance to airflow. And so, uh, and that's one of the, the, the things that I did with weaning is is used like CPAP for weaning. Mm. So it's it's like uh, you've seen a chronic lung patient uh, purse lip breathing. Mm -hmm. And why do they do that? It's because their airways uh, are collapsed and are floppy. And so they purse lip breathe to keep a positive pressure and it keeps their airways open so they can exhale completely. If If they have any evidence of lung disease and they have a trach tube, they lose that mechanical advantage when you put them on a trach collar. So uh, there's there's some things that we can do that we should do to make it easier for patients to breathe uh, as they wean. And now a moment from our sponsor. Hey, this is Nicole. And I wanted to let you know I have a new event coming up on November 20th. It'll be in the morning. It'll be with Des Wood and we're going to be doing some self-care. We're going to be doing some wicked self-care actually. We'll do gratitude and we'll do mindfulness and then we'll really get our burn on. We're going to sweat some of this stuff out. Go to foundonpodcast.com and click on Unwound Retreats and I'll give you all the information about what you need to know. Also, all the proceeds from this event are going to go to my friend's nonprofit called Hope Center Resources. She uh, helps folks in Seattle who are homeless get toiletries. Um, it's a wonderful nonprofit. So um, hopefully we can give this have this opportunity to give back to the community. All right. Is there anybody that sticks out in your mind that was your, like, a... Um, success story? There was a, uh, a recent patient, uh, you know, it's well, a couple of patients. One, uh, uh, Dorothy was uh, a patient from 15 or 20 years ago and was a 80-year-old uh, woman who uh, canned her own beans. And uh, she opened her home canned beans, but she didn't hear as well as, as she used to and didn't hear the whoosh when you open the canned beans. And so she tasted them but and thought it tasted bad, but spit it out and, and dumped it out, didn't serve it to her family. As it turns out, she got botulism and was on a ventilator for six months. And during that time, 
she could she could walk. She could she could sit at her table and play cards, but her diaphragm was paralyzed, and so she's on a ventilator. And we would uh, take her out and walk her up and down the halls. We call them bag and drag, and and hand ventilator as she's walking up and down the hallways. And and after six months, got her off the ventilator, and uh, she lived until her mid nineties and uh, developed a great relationship with her and. And I would take her flowers at her, uh, she lived in a retirement community and she'd sit with her old lady friends and I'd bring her flowers and give her a kiss on the cheek and, and get the old ladies talking. And, and uh, so I was her boyfriend for, for years. <laughs> and, uh, so it was, you know, that she's certainly a great success story. And, and recently uh, a patient named Robert and, and he was a lung transplant that was uh, didn't go so well, and and he was stuck on a ventilator for a long period of time, and people had kind of uh, they were stuck, and and they used some of the uh, the techniques that I suggested, and we did get him off the ventilator, and he did go home, and uh, so that was uh, very rewarding, and and uh, so you know I always think back to those patients, and and then. Uh, another that uh, a young lung transplant and, and she's at home and doing well now and and uh, just celebrated her birthday. So I just, I really, you know, I'm friends with them on Facebook and, and it's fun to follow them and, and see their life. Well, I know because what we see and experience is so different. Um, obviously, we've seen them at their worst. We see them when they're so anxious and struggling and, um, but with time and perseverance and dedication and teamwork and obviously amazing multidisciplinary disciplinary care, amazing respiratory therapy. You know, we can see these pe- people do live and get out. Um, and it is so heartwarming. Like my heart is like fill, filling up yeah. <laughs> thinking about it that. It is. It's, it's fun to watch. Gosh, I just love that. It's fun to watch them as they're being discharged and the nurses are lined up and then everybody's clapping. So it's, uh, yeah, we, we need, uh, stories of light for sure. (laughs) It's one, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Is there anything else you want to chat about? You know, I think the relationship between RTs and nurses are just fantastic. And, and just to have that as is, is fun. And, and, I, different perspective, you know, and the university is a, a basically a young uh, person's uh, environment and, and being a little older, it was it was fun to eavesdrop in on on the conversations of, of <laughs> some of the younger co-workers and and what they think about. And, and uh, it's it it was it made me chuckle and it it uh, it's it it's very it's a neat relationship. Well, we uh, certainly depend <laughs> depend on and obviously really love our RTs. I don't know. I mean, I've had countless times, especially like um, in my early career as a nurse. You know, my something might be going on with a ventilator, and, and I might not might not understood what was happening, or I just would be like, you know, overhead page. I need an RT stat, you know, or I'd call my RT and be like, oh my god, they're desatting and um, I, I've done this and this and I can't get them up and blah, 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 you know, and then um, yeah, everybody would 
always come running and, you know, knowing that we can depend on one another when patients are in crisis. And it's just, you know, obviously a wonderful and marvelous thing. Yeah. When I first started, uh, oximeters were certainly, uh, not available and, and we might draw a blood gas every two or three days. And, and it was back in the days where you, you filled your glass syringe with heparin and, and oh your own syringe. And, and so it was, we didn't do a lot of blood gases and, and, uh, oximeters certainly were not used and not everybody was on a heart monitor and, and, you know, so there was a lot more uh, of your skills were used in, in your observation and, and, uh, and my time at Harborview was interesting and we did a lot of, uh, say crazy things, but a lot of interesting things trying to, we would try and measure the CO2 content uh, that was leaking out of chest tubes so that we could, can, is there a way to predict our ventilatory requirements by uh, the CO2 that huh. actually was not exhaled, but actually passed through the lungs and, and participated in gas exchange. And so we tried to analyze that and we would we do uh, metabolic studies on just about everybody and see how uh, metabolic rates changed with different uh, therapies. So it was mm. an interesting time at, at Harborview. And can I ask you? Um, this is just for me, for me, and and a fun question. But when lung protective ventilation came out, um, what were your thoughts about it? Did you feel like, oh yeah, barotrauma has been happening for a while, or? Or did it, or was it just a new um, idea? Yeah. Do you know when when uh, ARDS was first being described uh, and looking at ventilation, the old standard was actually uh, hyperinflating the lungs during ventilation. So we were actually doing things backwards uh, back in the uh, in the seventies. We were using large tidal volumes, which probably led to the demise of a number of patients. And, and uh, so then they came out with the, the ArtsNet stuff and, and they actually, oh, right. actually had to stop the study because the survival rate was so much better with lung protective strategies than regular tidal volumes. So they didn't even finish the study. So uh, because it was so remarkable and mm. so, you know, it's, it's lessons learned and, and yes, uh, yeah, I know. It is interesting. Um, and same in, in nursing. We, you know, there's things that we've, you know, we're, we're frontline therapies, um, but no, lo- you know, we found obviously that no longer are either effective or, 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 or harmful. Um, I'm going to try for the layman out there just to say that we used to give patients, when Jerry's talking about, we used to give patients just these large lung volumes and probably a lot less number of times per minute. Right. But right. And now and the, thought, the thought was that when you're breathing every 10 or 15 minutes, you take a, a deep breath and take a sigh. I mean, that's normal uh, physiology. We all do that periodically. And, and so the thought is, okay, if we're periodically taking a large breath, then maybe that is, is, helps to keep the lungs inflated. And, and so the relationship between large, t- large tidal volumes and barotrauma was not realized until later. 
and not everybody had stiff lungs and and it didn't hurt everybody it just hurt some people and so it wasn't until later that they found that group of patients that had stiff lungs that the volumes caused the barotrauma and now, yeah, now, now that's just the gold standard, not for, not for COVID right now, but um, I guess when folks get to the place where they're, where they do, where they're on the vent, when they, they do. Um, it's kind of like uh, hydroxychloroquine and, and should we use it or not? And over time you figure out you shouldn't, you know, yes. <laughs> yeah. for other <laughs> But when it first comes uh, out, you think, well, yeah, if you let's try it and see what happens. But, you know, then af- after you evaluate it, you say, well, there's no benefit and there might be harm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, who knows what we'll know in five years from now that we'll we'll be doing differently. Yep. Based on what what we find out. It's called science. <laughs> yes. And we here believe in science. <laughs> The people uh, that listen to the show believe in science. That's what I'm going to say. Good. So. <laughs> um, gosh, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with me. Um, I know this is going to be a real treat for a lot of people out there. A lot of people that you know, Jerry, listen to this show. All right. So um, they'll be super excited. Uh I know we're holding our breath today because today is Tuesday, November 3rd. Well, what's, what's happening today? What? It, what? What? Yeah, kind it's, of... it's raining out, so I can't play golf. So what the heck? <laughs> well, I hope you and what you and your wife um, get back to traveling when you can. And I mean, hopefully I'll see you around. All right. Okay. We'll see you on the next one. Right. Okay. Thank bye. You, bye, Jerry. Yeah. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave an honest review on whatever platform you are listening. Also, feel free to share this with your nursing colleagues. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at founddownpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send in any stories. Just make sure they're HIPAA compliant. Also, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at founddownpodcast. We'll see you on the next one.